pray together, shall we? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your holiness. Thank you for your call to us to be holy even as you're holy. But you didn't leave us without a power to be able to do that, Lord. You have given us your word, which teaches us how to be holy, and you've given us your spirit, which gives us the strength to do it. As we walk hard after you, Lord God, may we be conformed to your image, the holiness that you have portrayed. And I ask, Lord God, that when we fall, that we would not get too down on ourselves, but rather that we would confess, repent, turn it over to you, get back up, and continue to walk on, because your grace is above all things. And we are saved by your grace, we're sustained by your grace. And we thank you for it. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that your grace would be evident. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you have given it to us as a precious treasure that we can share with others. Holy Spirit, come and make this word alive to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is Thanksgiving, and uh, Henry was right. We do have a lot of things to be thankful for. I am uh, particularly thankful that I, uh, as I was thinking about it, grew up in a large family with lots of brothers and sisters. And unfortunately, we haven't been together for a long, long time. We used to get together for lunch every Sunday uh, after church at my mom's house. But since this uh, whole thing has started, we haven't been able to do that. And, uh, and so I miss that. But I am thankful for every single one of them. Lots of good memories growing up. There's lots of other memories as well. And... Um, I just remember this kind of a thing when I was a young child. If I did something that was a little bit not quite up to my mother's pleasure, she'd go, Russell C. Cottonmore Jr., you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Anybody have a memory like that? <laughs> remember hearing those words as a kid. Remember what it was you were doing when one of your parents or teachers made that statement to you? Well, that statement, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, has lost its impact on today's society, I think. Uh, shame no longer carries the same punch that it used to. It has a whole different genre uh, around it now. It used to make us want to change certain behaviors. Psychologists now tell us that shame could possibly be one of the chief causes of a host of mental and emotional disorders. Therefore... Avoid it at all costs. I mean, think about it. In this do-whatever-makes-you-feel-good society, we have squeezed our shame thermometer so far back into the closet that it doesn't even register anymore. What is shame? The American Heritage Dictionary calls it, quote, a painful emotion caused by a strong sense of guilt, embarrassment, unworthiness or disgrace, something that brings dishonor, disgrace, or condemnation. Sounds like something to avoid, doesn't it? And so avoid it we do. Why? Because it is a death blow to our self-esteem, isn't it? 
In an article I read years ago, the author described the process very well. He wrote that shame makes us feel worthless, inadequate, and unacceptable. Makes us hang our heads and avoid eye contact with others. In the Asian culture, shame is referred to as losing face. Ever heard that before? That metaphor is penetrating because when we lose face, what happens? We become unidentifiable. We become non-existent, non-entities. In short, we become nobodies. When we lose face, our capacity to communicate is seriously hampered, isn't it? And when we're ashamed, we can't speak or look at a person in the eye. We can't interact with them. We, and, and we feel that we no longer can function effectively. Thus, we become devastated. And certainly, if we do wrong, we ought to feel ashamed. Sometimes, however, the manipulators of this world heap undeserved shame upon us, don't they? They embarrass us into action or non-action for their own particular purposes. One author wrote, the irreligious segment of our society often directs shame against religious people. Public school systems, along with other institutions of secular society, would shame Christians about our love for the Bible and our faith. If we encounter enough ridicule or obstacles, we might retreat from our straightforward stance, perhaps not all the way, but just enough to get comfortable. After all, we reason we don't want to offend. We want to get along, and we want people to like us. And the result is obvious. And he says this, the greatest manipulator and shamer of all time is Satan. In the Genesis account of the fall, Satan, in the form of a serpent, shamed humanity's first mother, Eve, and he did it with sophistry. Yea, hath God said? In other words, he implied, are you so stupid to think that God really meant that? Or are you just stupid enough to believe that he really said it? You see, Satan used shame to bring about Eve's downfall, and he still uses shame with the rest of humanity whenever we seek to act nobly or serve our Creator. Satan uses shame like a pry bar. He thrusts it into our souls and opens it up, making us vulnerable, shrinking from the shame. We move in the direction that he wants us to go, away from God. That's exactly what he has done in our world today, hasn't he? He's turned our shame meter completely inside out so that it works exactly opposite from the way that it was supposed to. Example, how many churchgoers privately sit in front of their 60-inch high-def screens and unashamedly watch sin portrayed as entertainment, yet when identified in public as a Christian, become flushed and shrink away? We live in a society where people tolerate Cardi B and blush at Jesus' name. There's something seriously wrong with that. What are you ashamed of? What causes you to blush today? 
Face it, our capacity to feel shame is all messed up. And uh, men and women engage in adulterous, illicit relationships and are simply not ashamed about it. Couples and families, they have their sordid, dysfunctional lives played out before a captive global audience through reality shows. Deviant sexual practitioners demand to be recognized, idolized, patronized, because, well, they're here, and they're not going to change, and they're not going anywhere, so we better get used to it and not only accept it, but honor it as well. Starting off right out of the chute, aren't we? Elementary school children actually plot evil against their peers and they don't even bat an eye about it. Never mind feel ashamed of it. Body shaming, online bullying, and today's cancel culture operate with an absolute lack of shame by inducing shame. Listen, we should by all means be ashamed of sin. But as Christ's followers, we should never be ashamed of the gospel. When it comes to being ashamed, however, the fact is what goes around comes around. Listen to these alarming words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it benefit a man, a person, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? And then in the very next verse, Jesus says this. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Friends, it's not easy to take a bold, unashamed stand for Christ today, is it? And if we're really honest about it, we have to admit that most of us can relate very closely to Peter, who less than 24 hours after he claimed he would die for Christ, cowered in denial before a servant girl. But Peter learned from that mistake, didn't he? He learned well. And after his life was infused with the Holy Spirit, denial of Jesus would never happen again. Here's why. Because he realized the incredible power that this message of good news has to turn empty hurting, dying, unfulfilled, unaccepted, unrighteous people into forgiven, restored, and renewed people in a right relationship with God. That is what he wrote years later. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen to the way the message renders the last few words of that passage. 
If they're on you because you broke the law or disturbed the peace, that's a different matter. But if it's because you're a Christian, don't give it a second thought. Be proud of the distinguished status reflected in that name. That's precisely what drove Paul to preach the gospel at Rome. That's it's precisely what will drive us to share it wherever we find ourselves. Listen, friends, there are a lot of things in lives that we ought to be ashamed of, but the gospel is not one of them. The gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. That's why Paul's words to us this morning are so, so important. I'd like you to turn in Romans chapter 1, if you would, in verses 16 and 17. If you were to boil the entire book of Romans down to two verses, these would be the ones. Everything in the rest of the book of Romans emanates from these two verses. So if you want to get a solid grip on sharing the good news of Christ in today's world, this is the place that we must start. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There's an old wives' tale that says, if you trace a circle of white chalk on the floor around a goose, that it will not leave the circle for fear of crossing the white line. How many of you believe that? It's, it's, I'm sure it's not actually true, Right? I recently read, however, someone's tongue-in-cheek remark that claimed that the only chalk line prohibition that I know of that actually works is that the Detroit Lions won't cross a chalk line if the end zone is on the other side of it. <laughs> now, even though the chalk line around the goose is not quite an accurate thing, the idea explains quite effectively the way that many Christians are in the church. The bold white chalk marks of criticism and ridicule and rejection and shame often prevent many of us from leaving the safety of our circle of our Christian fellowship to build outside relationships and share with our faith with an antagonistic society. We fear what people will say, don't we? I do. I fear what people will think and what they'll say. I'm no different from the rest of you just because I'm a pastor, you know. Soon as people find out I'm a pastor, oh boy, it starts. How will they view us? And to be sure, from a strictly human perspective, one could say that there is an awful lot in the gospel that sounds absolutely foolish to the world, isn't there? I mean, we tell people that we have faith in a God who allowed himself to be nailed to a brutal cross to deliver us. And they're asking, what kind of power is that? In today's world, that kind of thing looks like weakness and seems powerless. There is an aspect of the gospel that is unattractive. Let's face it, it is intimidating and downright repulsive to the natural person. It exposes his sin 
and it calls him lost and it views his good deeds as worthless in eternity. It's no wonder that people don't flock to hear it. To most people, it sounds like bad news, not good news. But that's also why so many churches have watered down their messages and softened their approach. The result is that sin is downplayed, God's wrath against sin is absolutely dismissed, and the idea of judgment is replaced by this sloppy form of, in, of tolerance that stands for nothing and falls for everything. In a very real sense, they not only have become ashamed of the gospel, but have become ashamed to the gospel. In this passage, however, we find something completely different than that. Paul wasn't afraid to own his faith, but neither was he brash about it. He wasn't impetuous or reckless or indifferent with it. He wasn't insolent or selfishly assertive, yet he never shrunk away from the consequences of what his belief in it might bring. He was passionate about the gospel, and he was compelled by the sheer power of God's means for bringing estranged people back to him. This is not irrelevant for our time, folks. In the midst of a power-hungry city where political hotshots were literally worshipped as gods, in the midst of a society married to the world and all the self-gratification that that can bring, in the midst of advanced technology, cutting-edge philosophy, higher education, and military might. That's what Rome was at the time. Paul did not shrink back or blush over the gospel that transformed his life. Do we? Paul knew there was more inherent power in the simple message of God's love and God's grace than in all the strength of Rome. He knew that. It was that power, the power of the gospel, that turned him from being an arrogant, violent, religious bigot into a loving, gracious man whose heart beat for others who were lost and caught in the treadmill of an empty life. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? I'll give you four reasons why. Number one, because he knew that it contained unfathomable power. Look at verse 16. So all we're going to look at today is verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God. That's an important point to get a hold of. If you are ashamed of the gospel, one of two things is probably true, likely true. Either it has not really transformed you or you really don't understand how powerful sin is and what kind of force it takes to overpower it. It takes nothing short of God's omnipotent power. Amen? That's why Paul could write in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. I wasn't quite accurate, and I said that's the only verses we're going to look at, but that's the main text that we're going to deal with. <laughs> you know me better than that. Chapter 1, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, 
But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, underline that, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God. If I were to ask you to identify the most powerful force that you know of on earth, what would you say? An atomic bomb? A nuclear reaction? Your wife's glare when you tell her you're going to play another nine holes of golf? Probably the most visible indication of power that the modern world has seen happened about 40 years ago. 40 years ago on May 18th in 1980. Cascade Range of Washington. 8.32 a.m. Mount St. Helens, right? Exploded, ripping 1,300 feet off the top of a mountain with a force of 10 million tons of TNT. 24 megatons. That's almost impossible to comprehend. To put it in perspective, that force is roughly equivalent to 500 Hiroshima's. That's an incomprehensible display of power. The explosion created a lateral blast of some 300 to 600 degree heat traveling at 300 miles per hour. People were killed as far as 16 miles away. That blast of raw power leveled 150-foot Douglas fir trees as far as 17 miles away while destroying, four, get this, 4 billion board feet of lumber. You know how much that is? It's enough to build about 300,000 two-bedroom homes. That's power. And that's not even the worst eruption in human history. In 1815, the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia was actually the most powerful volcanic eruption in recorded human history with a volcanic explosive index of seven. Mount St. Helens was only five. And by the way, every numeric increase is 10 times the amount of power. Yet that's nothing compared to the omnipotent power which is contained in the gospel. In fact, the word Paul uses here for power is where we get our English word for dynamite. But Paul's not referring to the gospel as God's dynamite here. Don't get that wrong, which blows all false religions and views out of the water, blasting a trail of success for the true faith. That's not what he's using that word for. The emphasis is not necessarily on what it does, but what it is. Let me explain that. The gospel is powerful in and of itself. According to Paul, the gospel is not just a powerful means in God's hands. Look at that verse again. 
It is the power of God. It is the power of God. It is the omnipotent power of God for salvation operating in the heart and souls of anyone who receives and accepts it. It is, as the genie declared in the 1992 Disney movie Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic power in an itty-bitty living space. That's what it is. The gospel itself contains the unfathomable power of God. You believe it? You see, a builder can readily understand this concept. How many builders do we have here this morning or watching? Okay? A regular hammer is only as powerful as the hand that swings it, right? An air nailer, however, on the other hand, has... What does it have? It has intrinsic power. In other words, a child could use it. It's not dependent upon the power of the person that's wielding it. In essence, that is the incredible beauty of the gospel and the reason why we should never be ashamed of it. The power of the gospel does not depend on the skill or the knowledge or the strength or the ability of the person delivering it. It has intrinsic power. The gospel is powerful in and of itself because God himself empowers it. Amen? Amen. We need to get this straight. Some churches try to make the gospel more powerful by all kinds of methods. Make no mistake about it, my friends. Modern and relevant techniques are great vehicles for stimulating people's interests. Okay? But no amount of technique or salesmanship is going to bring a person to salvation. It's not. The power is not in the music. It's not in the media or in the methods that are involved in the presentation. The power is in the gospel itself. That's what Paul's saying. So it doesn't mean, so you can present that gospel in a church, outside the church, with a mask on, without a mask on. It does not matter. The power is intrinsic in the gospel message. Let's get this very, very strongly in the forefront of our mind. That means that none of us who are Christians have to carry the burden of forcing results, doesn't it? The outcome, the success of it, does not depend upon you and me. It depends solely on the power of God inherent in the message itself, on the power of the Holy Spirit that is putting that out from the person that's delivering it. But it's inherent in the gospel message itself. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would, and verse 18. Paul writes again, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Same book. 
And my message, Paul says, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of what? Power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, unfathomable power in simple words. Why should we be ashamed of that? Why should we be ashamed of that? We should not be ashamed of it. Not just because it has unfathomable power, but secondly, because it maintains an unmistakable purpose. Verse 16, again, back in Romans chapter 1, the second part of that verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Notice that. It has an unmistakable purpose for salvation. Would you be ashamed to offer a drowning person a life vest? Would you cower away from that? Would it bring shame upon you to do that? Why are we so ashamed to offer the only thing available to keep men out of eternal hell? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. To be sure, that terminology often turns people off. Okay? One of the great regrets that I have in my life as I, uh, is an encounter that I had with this blue-haired elderly lady who used to walk around the streets of Augusta, Maine. And she would ask people, everybody she came in contact with, are you saved? Are you saved? You'd encounter her coming out of a grocery store and she'd stop you. Are you saved? I remember as a new Christian being embarrassed by that once as she came up to me and one of my brothers and asked that question. Why was I embarrassed? She was gentle, she was humble, she was concerned about my brother's soul, but I was too caught up in how I might be perceived by him to, to have the same faith as her to even ask him myself if he was saved. My own brother. Offering the gospel of salvation should be an excitement, not an embarrassment. It's the good news of God's incomparable and incontrovertible love for us that while we who are the worst possible sinners we could be, Christ gave himself for us. That sacrifice, that all-giving, all-encompassing act whereby God took upon himself our guilt, our punishment, our death sentence is so contrary to the way that the world treats people that more often than not, it's probably something that they really would want to hear. A contemporary society is killing itself, trying to find salvation in a thousand different misguided ways, isn't it? Humanity has always recognized its need for help. I've read that Seneca, a Roman philosopher in Paul's time, taught that all men were looking ad salutem, means toward salvation or toward health. He held that men were overwhelmingly conscious of their weakness and insufficiency and that we therefore were in need of a, let's get this, a hand let down to lift us up. That's what he said. You know what salvation is? 
Salvation is God's hand let down to lift us up. The gospel of God is God's way of letting down his hand to us. Salvation is a broad, far-reaching concept in the Bible. Its root meaning is soundness, completeness. That's what the word means in the original language. It includes forgiveness, but salvation goes way beyond just reconciliation. Ultimately, it results in complete restoration and a recreation of all that sin has touched and destroyed. That's why Paul could write, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. The gospel has this inherent power to rescue and save us from the past penalty, the present power, and the future presence of sin for everyone who believes. The gospel, therefore, is nothing to be ashamed of because it contains unfathomable power, God's power, because it maintains an unmistakable purpose, our salvation, and thirdly, because it sustains unlimited potential. Again, the last part of verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's only one thing that can limit the awesome power of God's salvation. You know what it is? Unbelief. Salvation is available to all, but it's only attainable through faith. And even that can't be mustered on our own. It is given by God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know the verses, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that anyone should boast. Belief is the dividing line. Man thinks that if he's good enough, he's going to be okay. The problem is no one can ever be good enough. To the person that wants salvation, God doesn't first say behave. He says believe. It's a matter of trust. God says the only way to be saved is to trust me. I'm the only hope you have. That's what God says. People, however, say they can't put their faith simply in what someone says. They need to have more proof. Yet a measure of belief and trust is central to our way of life, isn't it? What do you need more proof for? Look around. You operate by faith every single day of your life. Faith in something. For instance, you drive 80 miles an hour when you're late for work. And trust that the car will get you safely to the office and the only thing touching the ground is a few square inches of rubber. That's not faith. You trust that your job will still be there when you arrive and that you'll be paid at the end of the week for all the stress you put in the last 40 to 60 hours. That's not faith. Let's face it, some of you in this room wouldn't survive without having faith and trust in a doctor whose name you can't pronounce, whose degrees you've never verified, whose prescriptions you cannot read, which you take to a pharmacist you've never seen before. He gives you a chemical concoction you don't even understand. And then you go home and you take this thing according to the instructions on the bottle, believing that you're going to live to tell about it. That's not faith. If that's not faith, I don't know what in the world is. 
But Paul says the gospel is powerful enough to save everyone who believes. No exceptions for everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that his death and burial and resurrection is the only basis upon which a person can be right with God. There is salvation. Guaranteed. We need to put total trust in the facts as God has presented them. Amen? Romans chapter 10. Two chapters over. Verse 9. That if you confess, this is what we're preaching. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Unlimited potential. Verse 17, and how does it come about? That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word. You know, there are no racial, ethnic, denominational, or geographical barriers to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And all that simply means is this, that the gospel came to the Jews first only in order of time. They were the people to which God chose to reveal it first. It was through the Jews that Messiah came. It was to the Jews that the offer of the gospel was first given. But Jew and Gentile alike are saved by that same exact message of truth. Don't get that wrong. There's not two different gospels. There's one gospel. It is unlimited in its potential to save, but it's also the last thing. It reveals unequaled provision. Verse 17. Verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. When Paul used the word righteousness, He's using a big word, a huge word. Righteousness is this gigantic concept to Paul. In fact, he spends the rest of the time in this book talking about it. He brings up the subject about 35 more times in the book of Romans. Paul says that we who believe the gospel have been given the righteousness of God. See if you can wrap your head around that. The righteousness of God. That's almost incomprehensible. If it wasn't in the, in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it myself. Would you? The righteousness of God? Now, when most people hear the term righteousness, they get this picture in their minds of, of the holiest, most perfect human that they can imagine. Who would that be for you? Who would that be for you? 
But when Paul talks about righteousness, he's picturing God's standard, not man's. Humanly unequaled, unparalleled, unapproachable. If we consider God at the top of the measuring stick, and I would ask you to place someone like, well, I don't know, let's think of the holiest person you know. Well, first thing that comes to mind, you're going to say Billy Graham, right? If you were to place him on the scale, where would you put him? Eh, three quarters of the way up, maybe, or whatever. Uh, you might some, place some mass murderer way down at the bottom, right? Where would you place yourself? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? But is this thinking theologically accurate? According to Scripture, there are only two kinds of people, righteous and unrighteous. There's no in-between. Unfortunately, it's always the ones who think that they're righteous who seem to do the classifying on that kind of a scale, right? You see, we get caught up in something what I call relative righteousness. You've heard me talk about relative righteousness before? You understand what that means? Let me illustrate how that works. You're going 45 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. You're speeding, right? Now the clear blue sky, some gearhead redneck with a hopped up four wheel drive, pimped out, demon possessed pickup truck. <laughs> Blows by you at about 75 miles an hour, scaring the living daylights out of you. And the next thing you know, you're yelling and screaming about the fact that there are never any cops around when you need them. But here's the thing. We tend to measure ourselves against people who are seemingly lower than us on the righteousness scale. Somehow we think that the guy going 75 miles an hour deserves a ticket more than we do, but we were both speeding. Right? That's relative righteousness. This is often our approach to the world of people around us, isn't it? We fall into Satan's snare of thinking that those homosexuals or those transgender people or those corrupt politicians or those drug dealers deserve hell more than you and I do. Fact is, friend, in God's eyes, we all equally deserve hell apart from Christ. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has famously, rightly said this, quote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Unquote. Now granted, some people's sinful actions are worse than others and impact society with a much greater force. But every little secret sin that you and I have committed qualifies us for just as much eternal separation from God as the mass murderer down the street. The sins aren't equal by any stretch, but the spiritual result is exactly the same, isn't it? Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. And Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no such thing as relative righteousness in the eyes of God. That's why people were stunned when Jesus said, 
unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 21. Now, you know who the scribes and the Pharisees were? They were the most outwardly righteous people that society knew. They were the ones that came to mind when you say, who's the holiest person you know? They would be the ones. Yet inwardly, Jesus said they were completely corrupt, whitewashed graves full of dead man's bones. We need God's kind of righteousness. When we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, we literally receive, the Bible says, his righteousness. God declares that we are as guiltless as if we had never committed sin in our lives. Can you get that in your head? I, I can't comprehend it. That's what justification means, right? Just as if I'd never sinned. God declares that we are not guilty because of what Christ has paid for on the cross. Unbelievable? Yeah. Inconceivable? Absolutely. Readily available? You bet. Because it's God's provision to those who believe. That's what it says in Romans. Chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that, we in, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see? And all those who believe the gospel have been shrink-wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. Think about it that way. Think about those boats you see all winterized down the street with that big blue shrink-wrapped stuff, right? Now, next time you see one of those things, praise God and thank God. Think of yourself, that blue stuff being around you as God's righteousness. You are shrink-wrapped in God's righteousness if you are a believer in Christ. Nothing getting through. Satan's not going to get through that. God sees us as completely and totally encompassed with his righteousness as those boats. That is, why, that is what we call amazing grace. That is why the gospel is such good news. It distinctly declares that through faith we can be right with God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of highest privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. What is there to be ashamed of with all of that that we just talked about? It contains God's unfathomable power with an unmistakable purpose. It has unlimited potential to affect the entire world by providing what none of us could provide for ourselves, the righteousness that meets God's minimum daily requirement. And you know who provides it? He provides it. How far does he provide it? Well, it says it right there in verse 17, from faith to faith. In other words, 
from the day you first believed until the day you come to glory. From faith to faith, God will provide it. He will sustain it. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And so Paul wraps that verse up with, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. Not by law, not by sight, not by feelings, not by signs or wonders or miracles or healings, but by faith, it says. The righteous man shall live by faith. Let me wrap it up. In the early days of the gospel in the South Pacific Isles, there were many missionaries killed by the natives who were in a state of savage cannibalism. And finally, John Patton arrived at his destination in the New Hebrides and by one, by one of the acts of providence, which unbelieving men call chance. Uh, he came to the island at the moment when there was a terrible epidemic. I read this. That had decimated the population. And he entered into the huts of the sick and he began to care for them. He buried the dead, tended to the sick, and when the epidemic had passed, he was received by all and began to take up his life with them on the island. And his first thought was to learn their language, and he began to listen to their speech and write down in his notebook all the words and phrases which he learned. The natives became accustomed to having him stop them in the middle of a sentence, repeating words and waiting while he wrote them down. And then there came a time when he decided that he would begin to translate some of the gospel stories into their language. But to his dismay, when he began the task, he discovered that there was no word in his book for faith or trust or belief. And of course, you know, you're not going to get very far in translating the Bible without those words, right? And so he turned his full attention to finding something in their language, something that would convey the missing idea, but nothing that he encountered would do it. He imagined stories that would bring up possible conversations that would contain such a word, and the natives knew that he was seeking something, but they couldn't imagine what it was. And after some time of frustration, he went on a hunting trip with one of his helpers. And they shot a deer-like animal and several smaller game, and they started to carry their kill back to the house of the missionary. The equatorial weather was absolutely oppressive with heat and humidity. And the hill in which they hunted was trackless, and they arrived at the house just completely exhausted. And they dropped their heavy burdens... And then they cast themselves down on the grass to rest. And the natives said this after a moment, Oh, it is so good to stretch yourself out here in the shade. The missionary, he just seized the moment. And excitedly he had his companion repeat that sentence again and again and again. And he put every bit of it down in his book. And when the Gospels were ultimately translated by that man, this was the word that was used to convey the idea of faith and belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever stretches himself out on him, stretches himself out on him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
and stretch yourself out on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And again, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and in your heart stretch yourself out on the fact that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one stretches himself out unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So I want you to take some time in the next few days to read Hebrews 11, that Hall of Faith chapter, and notice the repetitive phrase, by faith, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses lived. And then read in verse 16 of that same chapter that it was for that reason God was not ashamed to be called their God. And then ask yourself the hard question. Is God ashamed to be called my God today? My beloved brethren, we are the church of Jesus Christ. Let us not be ashamed to stretch ourselves out upon him lest God become ashamed of us. Stretch yourself out on Christ and live. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the salvation that you have wrought in Jesus Christ for us. Not that we deserved it because you among all people know we didn't, but you counted us worthy to let down your hand in grace so that we might be lifted up by faith to eternal life. That is the largest thing, the greatest thing, the most incomprehensible thing that we can be thankful for this week. Help us, Lord God, when we have opportunity to share it with others that we might not be ashamed of the gospel. But in that name of Jesus Christ, we would go forth and live. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.